right? So the, you should be a Marxist because that's the best way to be an anti-racist or that's the best way to be an anti-imperialist or that's the best way to be a feminist, right? They would kind of do this thing. And that's an 80s thing. That wasn't really the 60s. everyone welcome back happy new year welcome back to bunga cast your home for 2024 as it has been for the past seven years i hope um welcome back for all the long-time listeners and welcome to the to the new ones maybe picked up maybe this is your new year's resolution listen to bunga and uh 2024 this is somewhat kind of facetious on my part because um we're recording this at the end of 2023 so um if anything that we discuss now is, is is not mentioned and something major if the world has ended and we're failing to talk about the world ending um don't shout at us we'll get there but we just haven't gotten there yet because where we are the world is still very much um with us even if it does seem to be falling apart to some degree anyway um today we're welcoming uh, chris cutrone um to talk about his book the death of the millennial left um chris i didn't ask how you'd like to be introduced so maybe uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself uh, well, sure. Um, so I'm uh, the original kind of teacher of the Platypus Affiliated Society, and it came out of my academic teaching where I, I teach at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I teach critical theory uh, in the art history department, and I taught for many years at the University of Chicago in the social sciences college curriculum. So that's my essential background. But why I am in the public sphere is because my students dragged me into it. Um, during the uh, war on terror, they wanted me to help them understand the world outside of the classroom. And so I obliged. Always good to have an alibi, certainly. Um, <laughs> this podcast, for those for those who are new to us, uh, is uh, George Hoare in the UK and Philip Cunliffe also in the UK. Hi, guys. Hi, hey. how's it going? Happy uh, 2024. Happy New Year. Yeah. It sounds really weird one. saying that at the end of December, but <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I'm Alex Oakley. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, I think I forgot to introduce myself. Um, so um, this book, The Death of Millennial Left, um, it's a lot of themes that we've discussed a lot on this podcast. So it'll be nice to delve into them and discuss them with you, Chris, um, because it'll be a, a kind of a different perspective, I guess, on issues that we've discussed, you know, at, at length, really, over the over the seven or so years that we've been doing this. Um, mm. Firstly, the book itself, it's a collection of essays, which has been published over a period of time with a couple of new ones thrown in. So what motivated publishing them together at this point? And I should also note, I think there's a second edition coming out soon as well. Right. So um, I first came up with the idea of collecting my writings in 2018. So a couple of years into the Trump administration, uh, prior to the squad election, I felt like a certain kind of beat was reached in terms of a historical interval. Um, so I had uh, been writing mostly in my capacity with Platypus um, starting in 2006. And uh, kind of one genre of writing was commentary on current events. 
and challenging more or less gently, more or less strongly, uh, the kind of left doxa about how to think about capitalist politics. And that's what's collected in this volume, um, The Death of the Millennial Left. It's really my writings that have to do with capitalist politics, changes that were happening, the war on terror, the Obama election, the Great Recession, the Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street, and then finally, um, Sanders and Trump, the kind of Bernie moment, but the Trump election. Um, And also along the way, some kind of perennial issues, which turned out to be more salient than I would have thought uh, back in 2006, namely uh, what the old uh, left used to call the black question in the United States or anti-racism in the left. Um, So those are the main themes of the book. Now, you mentioned, yeah, there's going to be a second volume. The other genre of writing that I've been doing in this time of the millennial left has been more on history and theory, the history and theory of Marxism. And those writings will be in the second volume, which is titled Marxism and Politics. So um, what has happened, of course, in the last five years, since since I originally thought about collecting my writings, um, was that you know, we have this other kind of crisis of uh, COVID and the end of the first term of Trump anyway, and uh, the second Bernie campaign, um, Biden's election, the expansion of the squad of progressive Democrats in the Congress um, that has really solidified for me my sense of the millennial moment passing the millennial left's moment passing um, in its consolidation as part of the Democratic Party in the United States. Um, Now in Britain, you know, there was a parallel development around Jeremy Corbyn and momentum. Um, There was an attempt to basically what most people would think of as pull the Labour Party to the left. Um, That doesn't seem to have worked out. Um, But In the United States, there still is this kind of illusion that the millennial left has, in fact, pushed the Democrats to the left. Um, You know, again, the the squad, the progressives in Congress, and even Biden is seen as the most progressive president of our lifetimes. Um, So, again, not much from my perspective has changed. but maybe the point has been underscored in the meantime. Um, so, so, I mean, about yeah. the millennial left, because, I mean, you know, the, the term, I guess, does prompt the question a bit. When mm-hmm. was the millennial left and what makes a millennial? I mean, why define it in, in generational terms, if indeed that's what you're doing? No, that's a good point. Um, so, of course, I am not a millennial. I'm Gen X. I'm the dreaded Gen X. And what that means the is The worst that ones. Yeah, the worst were the worst. Uh, well, no, maybe the boomers were the worst, actually. The boomers did more They're damage. All the worst. Yeah, we're, we're all boomers anyway, but, but the boomers might have been worse because they might have done more damage than my generation was able to do. Um, so I've been uh, kind of active in thinking on the left for a very long time since I was an adolescent, since I was in high school. And I just had a very different experience of the left and uh, the meaning of basic things like Marxism and socialism. Um, And I had actually stepped away. It's something that I talk about in the book. I had stepped away from the left. I had certainly dropped out of activism. 
I continue to think as a Marxist, but in a less um, directly political way in terms of current events going on in the world in the 90s. And uh, I did see a change with the millennial left. So I would say my generation kind of uh, took its history up through the Battle of Seattle in 1999 and anti-WTO protests thereafter and alter globalization, anti-globalization, you know, um, again, up to the 9-11 attacks and the war on terror. Um, so I had stepped away from the left. And as I mentioned earlier, I was brought back by my students. So I taught Marxism academically. And I certainly had a group of friends who I more or less converted to Marxism <laughs> um, in a kind of a, a little bit of a crazy way. Um, you know, we were students of Moish Postone at the University of Chicago. And um, I basically convinced my fellow students in the bona fides of uh, Lenin and Trotsky um, as someone who, who was studying from a Frankfurt School background. So I was a kind of an academic Marxist, I guess a budding academic Marxist or something like that. It wasn't terribly political. But then there was this wave of activism around the war on terror. And that's when I date the emergence of the millennial left. So I was teaching at the University of Chicago starting in 2002, teaching at the Art Institute starting in 2004. And uh, I saw students become politicized and radicalized around the war on terror in already very early on in my teaching. And certainly by 2006, when Platypus started and when other things were happen, happening contemporaneously. So the new Students for a Democratic Society was founded in 2006 out of the anti-war movement. So to me, that marks just to, you know, 18, just 20 to clarify, years. Just to clarify, Chris, when you say the war on terror, um, do you mean the invasion of Iraq specifically? Or was it with, with these student activists that you encountered, were they contesting uh, the war on terror on a broader front? It's a good question. I would say that there were already questions in, in, in my students' minds around 9-11, um, around the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. So uh, I would say that the Iraq war uh, really ramped things up a great deal. And I do think that the Iraq war was a turning point. Um, uh, I just so happened to have been watching The Crown and it depicts Tony Blair and it depicts Tony Blair at the height of his popularity. It also depicts him as a kind of moral scold on Bill Clinton regarding Yugoslavia, the breakup of Yugoslavia and the NATO intervention there and getting the U S to support. Um, and um, there's, you know, sort of foreshadowed that his popularity is going to crash and it's not depicted yet, but of course, Tony Blair's popularity crashed around the Iraq war in particular. So the Iraq war was a, was a specific kind of political crisis um, that certainly politicized and radicalized people. So, you know, when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking who, who were my students, you know, 18 to 22 year olds between 2002 and 2006, basically. Um, and they're coming to consciousness. 
around those events, around those issues. So before the Great Recession, before Occupy Wall Street, right, um, politicized around issues of war and imperialism, um, and yet still kind of interested in Marxism. Like I said, I was I was teaching Marxism at an academic level, and certainly the Marxist left was very active in the anti-war movement. They were there. So my students would go to my classes, then they'd leave class, go to an anti-war demo and encounter the Marxist left. And they'd be like, wait, this doesn't quite add up to how Chris is teaching Marxism in class. And so they had questions. But I think that, you know, I, I know that that it's a kind of moving target. Like, when did the millennial left start? And, um, you know, certainly there's a strong impulse now to forget the earlier history and to say it began with the yeah. Bernie campaign. Right. Um, and I think that that's usual as usual for the left. It tends to be very amnesiac regarding its own history. Um, so I mean, it's, it makes, it makes a lot of sense actually. Cause I mean, although, you know, we are, have been more interested in the post global financial crisis, period, not just the start of the Bernie campaign, but really dating it from, you know, the post 2008 period. It's yeah. true that there is a, a prehistory, as it were, um, you know, so <laughs> in our terms, I guess the end of history, but um, where, right. you know, people, the very oldest end of millennials, if you date them um, for just being born in 1980, they'd be 23 at the time of the Iraq the invasion of Iraq war. Yeah. And then the youngest end of the cohort would be 23 now. Um, in 2023. Right. So I guess that that kind of fits together nicely. And it, it's true, your book, I mean, your book draws attention to that kind of prehistory, which um, I think we haven't discussed very much, but it was, it was interesting to kind of put that into dialogue, because I think my impression is that there's a big, there's a bit of a gulf, right? So there's the anti-Iraq war invasion, and then kind of nothing was really happening from 20, from 2007 to, um, until the, until the crash, until the post-crash period. So it's kind of, um, the anti-war movement had certainly um, collapsed around the Obama election. So I wrote, I write in the book, I have three essays, four, depending on how you count it, on Obama, um, you know, different aspects of the Obama candidacy and, and election, namely as, uh, as a black man being elected to the presidency of the United States as an anti-war candidate against Hillary Clinton in 2008 in the primaries, um, and also as a purported economic reformer, New New Dealism, circa uh, 2008. You know, so a lot of things came together. Um, I do think that the prospect of the end of the George W. Bush presidency, you know, the end of his second term, the prospect of a Democrat being elected, um, the Democrats had sort of been equivocal, but generally posed as critics of the war on terror. Um, but certainly Obama, like his candidacy, his election seemed to bring an end to the anti-war movement because the anti-war movement got what it wanted. It got rid of George W. Bush. It, it brought a Democrat in and it brought a nominally anti-war uh, Democrat in. Well, hello, listener. I hope you like what you're hearing. It's a short excerpt from an episode that's available only to subscribers. Want to support BungaCast and get at least two original episodes a month? Sign up at patreon.com slash BungaCast right now. 
$5 a month patrons get access to exclusive episodes like our in-depth analyses of present history. You know, the big stuff that's happening right now. As well as chats with our regular guests, extended interviews with the key thinkers trying to understand our world today, and much more. For $10 a month, you join the BungoCast Reading Club, the place for those of us who are serious about equipping ourselves with the necessary intellectual tools for understanding the world and seeking to change it. Phil, George, and myself, Alex, look forward to seeing you there. Patreon.com slash BungoCast.